In nine days, free speech could change forever because we could have on our hands a Supreme Court case that challenges our ability to speak freely on social media. This is an update to the case where the Biden administration has been begging the courts to please let us keep censoring social media. We did it so well during the pandemic. We love it. We're drunk on that power. We need to keep going. Now, again, this is an update to the case brought by Missouri and Louisiana attorneys general. And in July, Judge Terry Dowdy ruled that the Biden administration had violated all of our First Amendment rights by working directly with social media to censor speech about COVID and other topics. He ruled the government cannot do that anymore. So the Biden administration appealed saying, please repeal this ruling. We need to keep doing that. We want to censor American speech. And we got a ruling just last Friday. The court gave them 10 days before the ruling goes into effect to see if they want to appeal it to the Supreme Court. My guess is that they do. They want to do this. But the ruling did mostly uphold the edict that the government should not be working with social media to censor speech. But it's very specific. I want to take you through it because I want you to see what the government's, what our own government is arguing it should be able to do to us. It's amazing. I mean, this is the year 2023 and the federal government is trying to argue in the courts for the power to censor speech. This is our most basic freedom and we need to see what they're doing. So here is the ruling, the court ruling on what the government is doing. This is sort of their summary that the plaintiffs argued that the government had been doing this big, bad First Amendment abuse. They said, we agree. The government should not be doing this. Um, they showed examples such as this. Here is one social media reaching out to um, being reached out by the government saying, hey, you know, I don't think we're saying you should remove vaccine hesitancy, but it's reasonable to slow it down. Uh, what's why the difference? is that? What's the, what's the difference? Slow right. it, slow it down. Yeah. Um, here's a government official explaining that, you know, hey, you know, other social media companies seem to be able to get this right. What's wrong with you? They're sort of playing the bad, uh, the bad dad here. Like, you know, I, other people, other companies are doing exactly what we say. Why can't you? Um, they also point out, now this is all from the opinion, from the final ruling of these judges. So every time we get a ruling, we see all these examples of how bad the government's been. Here's another one. Uh, they had actually, the government succeeded in having a video removed from the Louisiana Department of Justice. The Department of Justice had just put up a video about people protesting COVID mandates and the federal government removed it. Um, the government argued that, oh, you know, that's because states don't have First Amendment rights. Here's their argument based on that. The courts did not agree. Wait, did we hear that right? That the states don't have First Amendment rights? The heck they don't. Good evening, everyone. I'm Joyce Kamen, Vice President of Public Information for the FLCCC, sitting in for Betsy tonight, who is quickly recovering from a minor eye procedure. So we hope to see you back in the chair next week, Betsy. So we are going to talk about the First Amendment and censorship tonight. That video clip that you just saw, uh, that was about the appeal in the Missouri versus Biden lawsuit, alleging that the U.S. government was not only threatening and coercing social media companies to censor Americans on social media, but they were also working with 
social media companies to accomplish that goal. So in order to properly frame our discussion tonight with Dr. Pierre Corey and our courageous, I mean, really courageous panelists, Dr. Merrill Ness and Dr. Michael Turner, who each have filed suits alleging violations of their First Amendment rights. Consider this phrase from the government official that was just quoted in the appellate ruling. The official referred to social media posts that do not conform to official government health policy narratives. He called it, quote, non-sanctioned information. Think about that for a moment. Non-sanctioned information. That was the violation. This is from a government official not representing an oppressive regime. This is from a government official of the United States of America, a republic that holds free speech as one of its most sacred tenets of individual freedom. But the official went even further, saying to a social media that, quote, removing bad information is one of the easiest low bar things you guys can do to make people like me think that you're taking action. Now, I think that is a brazen, unveiled threat of recrimination and sanctions if they don't stand at attention and walk in lockstep with officially sanctioned speech. The good news is that the appeals court agreed with the appellants that the government cannot limit free speech. However, it did leave the door open for the Biden administration to appeal their ruling to the Supreme Court within 10 days. And as of tonight, they have two more days to file that appeal. So what you will hear tonight from our panelists is what happens when our own government agrees to carry the water for pharmaceutical companies who are drunk on profits, power, and predomination, and for public health agencies and their minions in the medical industrial complex who assert that they, not your doctor, know what's best for you. They don't. Free speech means there cannot be sanctioned information to which you must adhere or, let, or else you're going to be punished in some way. And free speech means that you cannot restrict the speech of others in order to satisfy directors of um, uh, uh, directives of ambitious censors. Quote, our suit is a landmark event, said Dr. Turner, who you'll meet in a moment. That should concern and encourage every person who cares about our constitutional rights and specifically the issue of medical freedom. Dr. Nass alleges that the Maine Medical Board and its members used their power to, quote, crush dissenting views and chill disfavored speech. Wow, that couldn't be more true. Without further delay, here is Dr. Nass and Dr. Turner. And Dr. Corey will be with us, I believe, momentarily, because Dr. Corey has been on uh, an... Oh, Dr. Corey, you're here. Yeah, I, I, not to name drop, but I was just on Dr. Drew, you know. I just, know. Yeah. I know you were on Dr. Drew. <laughs> How'd that go? Oh, it was a great conversation. We covered a lot of topics. They, they're awesome. really good. Him and Kelly Victory do a really good job. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'll leave it to you to introduce uh, more fully our two guests this evening, Dr. Turner and Dr. Nass. Lots to discuss on this issue. Meryl, I'm going to start with you. You introduced yourself because your CV is longer than my arm. So uh, why don't you summarize it for us? So I'm I'm just an old doctor who the, who the medical board decided to go after because they needed a uh, poster child to scare the rest of the doctors in the United States and around the world. If you you know cross us by treating patients with ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, say anything mean about the vaccine, 
or anything else, you know, dispute any other parts of the narrative that we're pushing, uh, you too can lose your livelihood, your reputation, your friends, um, your, you know, be smeared in the newspapers on the and on the radio. Now, I have to blame you, Pierre, this is all your fault, because it turns out uh, that two of the three patients that uh, the board went after me for got my name through the FLCCC website. I knew we had to be involved somehow. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I was one of, I guess, probably two doctors who were openly prescribing ivermectin. And, you know, by doing that, we were asking for trouble because it had already been made clear that um, the state was going to come down on people very heavily, you know, as the feds had with all this baloney from the FDA and the CDC about these drugs. So yep. it was just I a matter of time. So we'll, yeah, I wonder, we want to talk about your individual cases. Michael, you want to introduce yourself, your background? Sure. <clears throat> Glad to be here. My name is Michael Turner. Uh, good to see you, Pierre. Good to hey, meet Michael. you, Dr. Nass. I've been at several conferences where you've spoken and have benefited greatly from what you had to share. Uh, I'm an integrated medicine physician. And, you know, coincidentally, I went into business for myself in January of 2020. So I was able to, <clears throat> yeah, thank God, I was able to <laughs> think independently and critically and <clears throat> rise to the occasion the best way I knew how. And I was guided greatly by the FLCCC protocols. I know without a doubt, we've kept scores of patients out of the hospital, saved lives through early treatment. You know, it's not, it's not nebulous. It's not rocket science. I mean, there are protocols at this point that you guys have published and promulgated and others, Dr. Zelenko, Dr. McCullough, et cetera. So it felt to me like the only rational appropriate thing to do was to pull out all the stops to helping people stay out of the hospital and improve. And unfortunately, Washington State had a different opinion. We can get into it, but they uh, basically are prosecuting me for providing early treatment, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, yep. which they have defined as below the standard of care. So that's substandard care in their mind. Yep. And might, they want to shut it down. Might as well just go into it. So tell us uh, how this happened, what the first contact was, what the first accusation was, and what they've done to you. Yeah, <clears throat> well, really interesting. I'll just I'll just reference the uh, misinformation statement real quick. I can screen share. So, you know, beauty of technology here. Um, yeah, I'll let you guys look at this live. So this is this is live here. This is still in effect. This is the COVID-19 misinformation Washington Medical Commission. Um, <clears throat> and you can see here. They talk about, uh, first of all, um, the, the WMC does not limit this perspective to vaccines, but broadly applies this standard to all misinformation regarding COVID-19 treatments and preventative measures such as masking, okay? And physicians and physician's assistants who generate and spread such misinformation or disinformation erode public trust, okay? And they go on to talk about their stance against masking or, or rather pro-masking and pro-vaccine, but then as far as where they start to get me in trouble, they say the WMC relies on the US Food and Drug Administration approval of medications to treat COVID-19 to be the standard of care. So they've defined the standard of care as what the FDA has said. So while not an exhaustive list, public and practitioners should take note. Ivermectin is not FDA approved. Hydroxychloroquine is not FDA approved. Oh, and by the way, uh, the public, you out there, Joe Public, you're encouraged to use this complaint form right here if you believe anyone has breached the standard of care. Wow, they make it easy, huh? They and made it easy. And and I let's just point out, I'm sure everyone realizes this, but that paragraph that you just outlined about FDA not approving those drugs, that that right. has been one of the most common 
misleading and manipulated statements that not only they use, but the CDC uses it all the time. There's not a memo where that sentence is left out. They're constantly reminding everyone, the FDA has not approved this for COVID-19. They don't leave, they leave off the fact the FDA doesn't have to approve it for COVID-19. It's an FDA approved drug. Off-label prescribing is very common. It's historically been used uh, 20% in outpatient, 30% in the hospital. And the FDA sure. has different sections of their website where they literally champion off-label use, especially in a, in a novel disease. I mean, you're supposed to use off-label, but here they're constantly hammering at you that they have an FDA approved this specifically for COVID. Right. And this was deliberately misleading, which yep. they admitted in this recent court case where Paul Merrick was a plaintiff. Now, what you should point out, Michael, is that up until this week, this past week, all of the COVID vaccines available in the United States were under EUA. None had been approved by the FDA for COVID. So mm. approved means licensed. In FDA terminology, they were all authorized under EUA, none licensed or approved by FDA for COVID. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I, I wrote an article. mandated them, right? Just pointing that out. Yet they became uh, requirements for travel, livelihoods, everything. Education. Hospitals. Yeah. Yeah. Shopping, gyms, et cetera. Oh, yeah. So that this, they were experimental products and basically state government, local governments and um, employers and colleges required uh, hundreds of millions of Americans to subject themselves to be guinea pigs for experimental products. It's against the Nuremberg Code, it's against the law, but this is what was done by um, pretending they were licensed products, but you could not get a licensed product because the licensed product was came with liability attached, whereas the EUA did not. So the government and the manufacturer could never be sued for injuries or for poor manufacturing practices as long it was, uh, as it was under EUA. And, and Merrill, you'll admit, right, the average citizen, and even me, if I wasn't paying close attention, wouldn't be able to distinguish between the words authorized and approved. Absolutely it, it not. In fact, our, our lawyer, Robert Barnes, didn't know the difference and kept changing it on, on legal documents we were writing. And I had to beat him over the head and say, that's not the right terminology. So nobody knew it. This is very specific to the FDA. Perhaps it was chosen to confuse everyone. Yeah. But if it says authorized, it is not licensed. Um, it is EUA. And if it says approved, it is licensed. So Michael, so what, so that's the background, right? So that's still on their website. That's the good old state of Washington medical board, uh, I assume, yeah. or Department of Health. And um, so how'd they find out about you? And uh, what did they think of your efforts in COVID? Right. So, you know, Here's what's interesting. Some uh, complaints started to roll in. And what's interesting, Pierre, is that these complaints were never from a family, a close family member, or even the patient. Never. All of my patients, all of their close family members were ecstatic, appreciative, grateful, et cetera, et cetera. The complaints would be from like the aunt who was a nurse, let's say, and, you know, and, and, and had a sort of an ax to grind against, you know, quack people who would possibly be doing this to their relative. And so they'd file a complaint or the ER doctor who would look over the med list and see that Joe patient was on ivermectin from Dr. Turner and he'd file a complaint. So there were these sort of like tertiary level people involved um, and basically saying, and one of them literally was from a granddaughter of the patient. And they're like, 
I heard that my grandma got ivermectin from this quack doctor, you know, please make him stop. That was basically the entire gist of the complaint. It was as foolish as that. Yes. And, you know, click the button and there they go. So then we enter into phase two, which is the fishing expedition, right? Because now they want to hit you and they say, show me all your processes, show me all this paperwork, right? Show me all of your documentation. And then they want to keep fishing around and searching for holes that may or may not even be related to the initial request, but they're looking to hang you up on something. And at this point, I'm, I'm big on quotes, right? And so a quote came to mind, which is very famous. This quote was attributed to the chief of secret police under Stalin, okay? And the, the man's name is Lavrenti Beriev. You can look this up. The chief of police, uh, and his quote was, show me the man and I'll find you the crime, okay? That's exactly what we entered into. We entered, show me the man and I'll find you the crime, meaning I can hang somebody up anywhere. I've got enough leeway. It's so Byzantine and complicated, you know, and nebulous what we're defining things as, and I'll find somewhere to trip anybody up. So just show me the man and I'll find you the crime. That's kind of where they've tried to go with this now. And so as a lawyer, at my lawyer, we had to actually play hardball and be tough. And it's like, no, we're not giving you these documents. I mean, we complied to a degree. We kept meticulous documents, but we all those had to stop this and call their bluff at some point because it was just mushrooming and taking on a life of its own, them trying to hang me up. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. And Meryl, that's similar in your case, right? So Oh, absolutely. So, and then Meryl, how did uh, how did you come to the attention of the board? What was the first, uh, who, who made the complaint? So two strangers complained to the board. Um, I think both were probably agents, although for sure one was because people I knew actually knew this guy. He used to follow, used to go to the demonstrations and take photographs of people at the um, uh, Occupy Wall Street demonstrations in Portland, Maine. So he was he was a known quantity. And he said, I am in favor of free speech, but not this kind of speech. <laughs> and which, of course, is a uh, oxymoron. And uh, which he had a daughter who was a doctor uh, at Maine Medical Center. Uh, so I anyway. And then the other was some uh, therapist, you know, with an LPC, I think, degree in my town who I'd never heard of. She didn't know me or any of my patients. And they both just said, Dr. Ness is spreading misinformation on the internet. And when the board said to this woman, what information? She said, Google her. <laughs> and she said she didn't use social media. You know, Dr. Ness is spreading misinformation on social media, but I don't use it. Um, so it's like, huh? And the other guy said, well, I'll, uh, you know, there was a particular interview she did. I'll get you a, I'll make you a transcript. So allegedly this truck driver, allegedly from South Portland, um, spent a day making a transcript of an interview I did and then sent it to the board. Of course, they then had to repeat it and get their own official transcript. Um, after all was said and done, after all the evidence was in on my case, and we had a, we had six days of hearings, um, which dealt with evidence, and there were, I don't know, thousands of documents, I think. There was at least a thousand documents that were submitted. There were reports from expert witnesses. That when it was, all was said and done, they dropped every charge that had to do with ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, vaccines, and misinformation. And they confined themselves to finding me guilty of things that we had proven during the hearings I was not guilty of, such as um, not sending the patient, not referring the patient to the hospital on in, a, in a timely manner, 
for I told the patient to go to the hospital in the evening and he waited until 10 a.m. the next morning and that's my fault. Or I didn't have penicillin down as an allergy and at the hospital record, the patient had a penicillin allergy allegedly, which I think she actually did not have. I think it was a hospital mistake. So my rec my, you know, I wasn't taking proper history. And then the uh, goal of this surgeon named Brad Waddell, who somebody, a woman actually, a woman doctor suing him for um, bias and having her fired. But anyway, he had the nerve to claim that I ran a pill mill and that I would only give patients what they requested. And I only took two pieces of history, one being the medication list and two being the weight, which was a lie. Um, in fact, two of the three patients that were being discussed by the board, I did not actually give them what they requested. But, the, but I was yesterday found guilty of these silly charges, um, which I wasn't guilty of and which we'd proven during the testimony. And we'd proven in our closing arguments and referred to where, where in the hearing we had shown this not to be the case. And so the board and the assistant attorney generals just ignored the entire hearing. You know, it had gone on for a year, ignored everything and just claimed that I was guilty of all the things, they, not all, but some of the things they had originally charged me with. With what's, no evidence. What's the punishment, uh, Meryl? So the punishment was as um, harsh, I think, as they were able to give me without revoking my license permanently. And my, according to my lawyer, they would never do that, revoke the license permanently, because then I could take it to a judge immediately who would actually read the whole record and find out that they had, you know, they... You know, they ignored the entire record. I mean, they, you know, they were just, they behaved criminally yesterday, yep. as did the assistant attorney generals um, in their report, just completely ignoring all the evidence and pretending that they they had proven everything in their case and that nothing had happened, that a year had not gone by. Um, so what they did was tell me, okay, my my ability to practice medicine is bad, so I have to take a course in that. Oh. My record keeping and telemedicine skills are terrible. So I have to take a course in that. And my ethics are terrible. So I have to take a course in that. And then I have to, when I'm all done, I have to prove it and then beg them to convert me from a suspended license to a, a license under probation. And then I have to have a monitor for what we think is two years. They never really voted on these terms. So it was sort of all mish, a mishmash, but then they then I have to provide a certain number of charts routinely. The monitor has to send monthly reports and then quarterly reports. And then if they so, you know, and then they at any point in this process, they can demand more or punish me in some other way. So, you know, this is ridiculous. The reason I'm going through this process is to um, make clear what the process is, which is, of course, the process is the punishment. And um, fight them. I mean, this the this is a completely spurious, um, I've never had, you know, I've never had a malpractice case. I've never had a board complaint, really. I've never had anything. And I, you know, if you added all their credentials together, it would, wouldn't equal mine. So yeah. um, in terms of papers published, talks given, six congressional testimonies, testimonies to at least 10 states and to a, a province in Canada and Talks around the world. Anyway, um, 
so, I mean, they didn't even know when they voted to sanction me originally, they didn't even know that I'd written a single paper. They had never been told anything about me. They made me sound like a really dumb country bumpkin. Yeah. But, you know, Meryl, I want to bring that up because uh, I don't know if I'm right here, but I think your case was somewhat unique because I'll, I'll talk about mine after Michael. But, you know, when they went after you, they took they revoked your license like as their they suspended it immediately before yes. hearing before trial. Michael, what, what, because I'm not sure if I know your case. Did you ever get your license suspended at one point? Is it still suspended or what? what so, what do they do to you? It has not been suspended. Um, our, my trial, such as what Dr. Nash just went through, is scheduled for next spring. So, okay. right now, I'm just under investigation. The wheels are turning and we're going to hash it all out next spring. So, all right. I guess you need to practice so unrestricted. What, what they did to me was again, they bro they've broken the laws on multiple occasions during this um, kangaroo court. What the there's actually a statute in Maine that tells the board what are the things they can suspend a doctor for. And so they had to have evidence that I was a substance abuser, an alcoholic, um, crazy, or demented, basically, or was harming patients in some way. So they never had any evidence of harming a patient. No patients claimed harm. They didn't even bother to review. They didn't call up any of the three patients they right. claimed had mistreated. So they, um, they, they don't follow the rules, which we've seen. They didn't follow the rules. They, they were not allowed to suspend me, but they did. And I've been suspended for over 20 months. Um, and then they hired um, an expert witness who was required by Maine law to be a, a Maine doctor, an internal medicine physician, and be paid up to a certain amount. And they paid this guy from Massachusetts who only works quarter time as a doctor um, and is really a writer and a pundit. Um, and they paid him three to four times the maximum. And, you know, uh, didn't but he wasn't in my field. He wasn't from Maine. He, you know, they didn't care. They just didn't care about the rules. So what they needed was a conviction. To contrast what happened to you, because I think, you know, you've written a lot on your Substack around these issues of this, the weaponizing of the boards, the, the ABIM, the licensing boards. Um, but, you know, one of the things you point out is that medical boards are very under-resourced. There's not a lot of money there. The, the people who sit on the boards are not paid very much. Um, and what's happened in my case is my first complaint against my medical license was August of 2021. Very similar in nature to you guys, you know, a pharmacist or a doctor called me a misinformationist. Um, you know, what was funny for me is like I was literally one of the clinical experts of all the evidence of COVID and ivermectin. So I, I could bury them with however much data you wanted. But I'm now up to, I think, uh, 10 or 11 complaints. I've responded to each and every one of them. I have yet to get a reply from the board. So they're just watching the complaints go up. They have not taken any action or done anything to me. So you got, you, you've you already been through your hearing and now your decision. Michael, you're gonna go through your hearing in the spring. Um, you're also with Ryan Cole in the state of Washington because they've done the same to Ryan. I'm an expert witness for Ryan, just like I was for Merrill. Um, hopefully you have your expert witnesses tucked in, Michael, uh, to go, at, go against we'll, these guys. We'll, we'll get it sorted out. Yeah, we've got a yeah. great attorney, Pete Serrano, working hard on this deal. But yes, Ryan Cole is part of this, as is Dr. Renata Moon. You may be familiar yes. with that name. Um, yes. Very prominent pediatrician. <laughs> Her case is really interesting. She had a faculty appointment at the uh, University of, of Washington or Washington State uh, Medical School, and she was 
giving congressional testimony, as I understand, about vaccines and her concerns about vaccines in the pediatric population. And solely on the basis of somebody watching her congressional testimony, they uh, suspended her from the university and threatened her license. And she gave it up rather than, you know, fight it at that moment. So, you know, that was her crime. One more point that you've made, Meryl, which I'd like to talk about is, you know, when I said that they're using like the American Board of Internal Medicine. So I just talked about my licensing board. The American Board of Internal Medicine has gone after me and Paul and Peter McCullough uh, and other two other colleagues uh, for being misinformationist. And they've already, you know, we've rebutted, we've defended those statements. They have voted to take away our certifications. We can appeal. But what I want to say is it's very clear what they're doing. They're making examples of us uh, to every other doctor in the country. And the thing that I found most astonishing, and Meryl, you and I have talked about this, but in that decision letter, the, the, the thing that I did wrong, what I learned that I did wrong from them is I violated this new principle of doctoring, which is that I went against, or I did not comport with consensus-based science. So basically, that nowadays the way we practice medicine is you have to stick with consensus because you know consensus has never been right. wrong and it's never fluid right it's always once consensus is reached it's immovable and doesn't change i, I guess that's what they think so anyway well patients are not individuals you know and as transhumanism evolves we will all be made in test tubes identically and there, that consensus that. medicine will be absolutely right but, but my point, Meryl, is that they're making examples of the three of us to scare every doctor in this country. You want to start publicly going against narrative, this is what happens. And the reason why I bring that up is with Meryl, with you, you know, you're this one doctor in Maine who the, the, the main lesson board takes action against, but you were a national story, like immediately. We right. saw your case everywhere, presenting you as uncredibly, and that's all for because the, they want all the doctors to know, it, you know, and the way it's presented, like, oh, she prescribed ivermectin, now she lost her license. She prescribed hydro. You know, they want to make doctors scared, witless to do these things, and it, it's it's incredible the amount of power that they'll exert to try to, to try to police us and get us scared from using off patent medicines. Yeah, I mean, that's how I found out that this wasn't actually about me was a couple of days later, you know, I'm in the national news and even Newsweek and The Hill ran articles. And I mean, it wasn't news. Doctor is alleged to have spread misinformation, <laughs> license suspended pending hearing, you know, it's like, where's that news? But it went everywhere. And then I realized they had a publicist. In fact, one of my lawyers pointed out that normally those articles would be behind a paywall, but they weren't. So somebody actually paid for that information oh, to go wow. broader. Um, and so then I said, well, hey, if they're if I'm going to be a poster child, I will, um, you know, give them a few posts. <laughs> wow. I didn't wow. know that they put it in front of a paywall. That's interesting. That's an interesting observation. Yep. Maximal exposure. You know, Pierre, your comments are spot on. They're trying to make an example of us uh, towards other doctors, have people cowering in fear. But, you know, I want to turn that around, as I'm sure you as well. We'll make an example of ourselves to be bold, to be courageous, to be speaking with integrity, right? And we may be wrong, but we're doing our best with our conscience, with the science, the best we know it today in public interest. And that's unassailable. 
you know, yeah. and we're going to make an example of speaking out when it's time. Like we can turn this media around to say, hey, every doctor back there, you may not be taking as much flack as we three are, but stick to your guns, you know, stand by it, write that exemption, provide that hydroxychloroquine, like whatever you need to do. It's okay. We're up here taking a beating, but we're standing strong. We're not backing down. We need an example. Like we're charging forward, you know, we make an example of ourselves to go out and get it done because it's easy to look back in history and see these pivotal moments, you know, the civil rights movement or apartheid in South Africa and these pivotal players, right? But we're living through that right now. This is our chance to stand up and make a difference, historically speaking, about what's going on, not only in our country, but worldwide, frankly. So love what you just said. And I would even yeah. go further is that I, I think the doctors, if they're smart and they can really understand this, but they should be concerned not only what's happening to us. But they're going to come for them next, whatever opinion they hold in the future. Let's say there's some new travesty or fraud that they want to call out that they can tell, you know, needs to be corrected. You know, yeah. they're going to come after them if they try that. And, and you know, and, and I like that you're kind of trying to bring it to a positive because let's talk about the three of us. Right. So mm -hmm. in order for us to, to maintain our integrity, honesty and transparency, um, we were partly excommunicated from the system, partly willingly left. But, you know, now I'm in private practice. I have no conflicts of interest. I don't work for an employer for whom I have to worry about losing my job if I speak openly and honestly. I'm my own boss. I stand by own, my own words. I don't have to have anyone policing them. Um, I can actually practice medicine with lots of autonomy. I'm employing and trialing various different therapies that I find that are safe, that's been long used. Maybe they don't have the trials for it, but I'm doing like old school doctoring. These patients are really sick. And and I think mm -hmm. it's great. And so one of my messages to people is people have to listen. They have to start thinking about where do they want to get their sources of information? And I think the criteria that you use, I've come up, these are my Corey criteria. Number one, you want to listen to someone with no conflict of interest, which is nearly impossible in modern society, right? Because I include anyone who works for a health system and, uh, uh, you know, a, a huge international health organization, um, anyone who works for farm or gets money from farm. I mean, they're all drowning in conflict. So you want someone- even, even more than that, you know, Pierre- Everybody in medicine has self-censored. We yes. have done that forever. We learned we had to do that in medical school. Yep. You know, yep. There are so no. many ways you can be slapped down. It's true. It's another layer, right? But, you know, I, I would want people, uh, you know, who have no conflicts of interest, who are open, right, with, with transparent with their data, unlike a lot of these trials that we attacked, they, they hid the data, they're not sharing them publicly, you know, Every one of the statements that the ABIM came after me for, I mean, I referenced every piece of data that formed those opinions. I'm willing to debate them. They did not want to debate their decision letter, ignored everything I submitted, and then cited like some WHO proclamation. It was absolutely absurd. Um, but, you know, transparent, you want them to be expert and well-studied, be willing to publicly debate. These are all things that haven't happened. Everyone's had conflicts. No one's debating. No one's sharing data. You have to trust their manipulated data. And so it's a really difficult position for, I think, the average citizen. And I don't know, I hopefully will sh will serve as examples for folks that, you know, you might want to listen to just because we, you know, you're right. We can make mistakes, Michael, but I'm not going to make a mistake because I'm under the influence of some financial incentive. So Correct. the thing is, we didn't make mistakes. I mean, I think we should be clear about that. We we only took these contrarian stands because the evidence was so overwhelming that we were correct. You know, if it had been a 50-50 thing, I wouldn't have gone out on a limb. I would have assumed other people were correct. But I mean, the, there's over 100 
papers published um, on the effects of ivermectin mm -hmm. on COVID. There's over 400 for hydroxychloroquine. And, um, you know, you cannot debate that. The, mm -hmm. uh, let me tell you what I learned with, with anthrax and anthrax vaccine. So as your audience may know, I was sort of the main doctor who challenged anthrax vaccine mandates, which started in March of 1998 for the military. And um, I did that because I was already an expert in anthrax and I knew something about the anthrax vaccine because I had actually studied the world's largest anthrax epidemic and shown it was due to biological warfare back in 1992. So, so in 1997, 1998, I challenged the, the mandates for the anthrax vaccine because I knew that even in congressional hearing, um, anthrax vaccine had been mentioned as a potential cause of Gulf War syndrome and that it had caused other injuries. So anyway, I, I wrote about this, the Lancet linked to something I wrote, and all of a sudden, you know, a lot of people were contacting me. What I learned from that experience in which we, we being myself with a coalition of military families, um, including colonels and other high military officers and many pilots, what I learned is that the science doesn't matter. Once you get into the to a an area of regulation and government, it's completely political. You know, we gathered up so much science. You know, I wrote the review article on anthrax vaccine. Um, you know, I could quote chapter and verse everything that was ever published on anthrax vaccine. It didn't make any difference. They were just trying to figure out how to use the law and the regulations to get the. I'm talking about the FDA, the CDC, and the DoD to get what they wanted was was an excuse to to mandate a vaccine that never had been licensed properly so even though it was was a licensed vaccine there was no efficacy trial and there were all sorts of other problems and we eventually got a, a federal judge to rescind to revoke the license and it was revoked for and he told FDA to go back and redo the license which they never did they waited 18 months rubber stamped the license gave it back but I learned from that experience that um, we gather all this science, you know, we have all the arguments and they will never engage in them because they know they are wrong. And it's yeah. not about getting the right answer. It never you know, was. Meryl, I've talked, I've made that point you made before. Like I've talked like just privately to some friends or Paul, like when I, you know, for my, my 800 millionth data argument on ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine or the vaccines, you know, I've, I've said like in my career, like in critical care, I mean, there's a lot of stuff we did where not that it was 50-50, but, you know, it wasn't totally clear what the best approach is in an individual situation. So you would have these really robust debates with colleagues. And I would argue for my preference, this is how I do it. And this is why I do it. And they would be like, no, I don't like doing that way. I do it this way. And, but the arguments were honest, you know, that you couldn't really prove or really disprove them. It really came out of clinical experience and you learn from each other. I had never seen an argument over anything where the data was so one-sided. I mean, just mountains and mountains of data for the, the, the safety and efficacy of hydroxychloroquine of ivermectin, and then the, the dangers and toxicity and lethality of the vaccines. I mean, it's not even close. And yet you get stuck into these stupid data arguments, which but, you're right. But, but, nobody, but the other side won't argue the science with you. They'll They'll produce fake data. You know, the CDC will cherry pick their data and say, blah, 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 you know, 
18 times as many unvaccinated people are dying. And then you realize they've defined everything wrong in order to make that statement. And it doesn't conform with the data from any other country. Um, so you're, you're dealing with a lot of fake data in the United States, but still we have international data. And so the facts are clear, but all these people who want to argue with you will never argue facts. They no. will not argue medicine. Um, same mm -hmm. for me, you know, with the anthrax vaccine and with the, the issue of uh, anthrax in Zimbabwe being biological warfare. A few people, I think CIA Connected, you know, published papers that said I was wrong, but they never grappled with the single argument that I had made. Yep. yep. So, um, so that's how it works. And what we need to do is we just need to know what their game is, and then we can play it, you know, effectively. Yeah. I yeah. think uh, we're going to, Michael, I want you to say something that we'll move. I think our audience probably has questions for you guys. So, uh, but go ahead. Sure. Just to elaborate on that last point, I agree with that. And since it's now moved out of the realm of truly science and data into the political realm, there's actually some hope for that because that's where we can engage you as Joe and Susie citizen, right? This is really about grassroots. This is about political organizing. This is about influence. It's about lawyers, rules, regulations, court, you know, politicians, lobbying, all of that, which is to say we need to come together. We're fighting for the soul of medicine right now is really what we're doing. We are fighting to have a doctor-patient relationship free of influence from the CDC, the FDA, all these three-letter organizations, right? We're fighting to do something to preserve some kind of healthcare space where you as the patient and we as a healthcare provider can come in a heart-to-heart -heart manner with integrity and do what's in your best interest. We're fighting for that. And everyone has skin in that game. And if it's not one thing today, it'll be something else tomorrow and next month and next year. So it's time to come together. Yeah. And that means that you have a role. You know, it's not some esoteric realm of academics and data. It's way past that. It's it's grassroots public perceptions and saying we won't comply and this is what we demand and this is, you know, what we want and we're going to vote with our dollars and our picket signs and everything else. And so the fight yeah, is on. Let me yeah. say one other thing. You know, the reason ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine were suppressed was so they could roll out their vaccine. And why did they roll want to roll out the vaccine when it's poison? So really public. <laughs> I know everyone here agrees with me, but still, the reason they wanted to roll out this vaccine was to harm us and to control us. And they're going to do it again. They will unleash more pandemics. That's what this whole WHO business is about, is collecting more biological warfare agents and being able to unleash them on the public. And when that happens, they are going to restrict the drugs and, and supplements you can have. They've tried to restrict, um, uh, what's it called? You know what I'm talking NAC? about? NAC? Right, N-acetylcysteine. FDA has been trying to take that off the market, make it a, a prescription, which then you won't be able to get. Um, you know, they, they attacked ivermectin hydroxychloroquine in many ways, not only through the doctors and the pharmacists, but through the wholesalers and the manufacturers to make it impossible for the pharmacies to actually obtain adequate amounts of the drugs Look, they're going to do this again unless we stop them. This is government against the people. Is it to depopulate? I do not know. I don't know why they're doing it. What I can say is we know that there are more than a dozen toxic um, epitopes on the spike protein that 
this vaccine is designed to force your body to make, and so and it can make it forever potentially. Yep. And you are making poison for yourself. It causes blood clots. It causes all kinds of other problems, potentially. Does not in everybody, but in you know it's Russian roulette. And we have to acknowledge this. The, our government and our health agencies know this. They have the data. They're hiding it. You know they're they're skewing it. They're they're not releasing ninety percent of what they have. They have about 20 different databases they won't tell you about, but that tax dollars are paying for them. Um, and so in the suppression of these drugs, they harmed us and they claimed that was for our safety. But in the mandating and pushing out now a third version of these highly toxic vaccines that potentially can kill you, at least through myocarditis and maybe through, and certainly through other means as well, like pulmonary emboli, and heart attacks. Um, we have to recognize that this is like super, super serious. It's not a game anymore. I didn't think this a year ago. I think this now. <clears throat> wow. I, I just have to say the three of you have literally galvanized everyone who is watching here tonight. If you just take a look at the chat, you can see how frightened people are, how much respect they have for all of you. Um, as as do I, I'm watching you and I'm thinking these people have gone through hell and back. And I know your court cases are not yet finished. And Pierre, you have yet to hear from the boards and so forth. And, you know, we were, Pierre, you remember in the very beginning, we were just puzzled as to why they would not, uh, no one would uh, publish the first protocol, at least in major media, that used a repurposed drug that used um, methylprednisolone and ascorbic acid, vitamin C and thiamine and, and heparin, all of these just very benign, but Standard. so effective. Yes, yes. Standard no drugs one. for hospitalized patients. We had we knew something was up. We just didn't know what. Unfortunately, now we know. But um, Dr. Turner, your, your um words about just grassroots and organizing and really coming together as a community of humanity. It just, it, it, you just have to rail against what has happened to you and it is unconscionable on every level, but let's get to some questions and then we can uh, perhaps talk a little more. Um, Dr. Laura Chamberlain asks, shouldn't all of us doctors file a class action suit against all the medical boards and the Federation of Medical Boards, the uh, FSMB? They wield a lot of power and they've been terrorizing doctors as well. Um, she said she's in, if all of you agree. Um, so I, I agree, you know, and somebody called me and suggested a RICO case. Um, mm we would have to get discovery. We don't have sufficient evidence of the collusion, for instance, of the FSMB with the government. We have a letter, one letter that I've seen from a, an FDA official to the FSMB, but I don't have more. It's Now, in the case of the misinformation that was talked about at the beginning of this show, where the federal government directed the social media companies who to censor, what to censor, et cetera. They th the federal government threatened the media companies they could lose their licenses if they didn't comply. But they also paid Twitter. Um, they, Twitter was able to bill the federal government for staff time to carry out 
all the instructions that the feds were giving them. So there was a carrot and a stick. If we had that kind of evidence, you know, please, people, call me, you know, give it to me, uh, merylnass at gmail.com or, you know, give it to Pierre. Um, we need to figure out what the mechanisms were to accomplish what was done. And right. then we could bring a, a perhaps a very successful lawsuit and shut this down. Yeah, the, the FSMB, so the Federation of State Medical Boards, that that's that one's a really interesting one, right? So that's a private organization. It's not really proven who started it, but it's almost certainly Rockefeller and Carnegie. It was the same year as the Federal Reserve. A lot of things happened in 1913, and FSMB was one of them. And I think it was started with an intent, but they literally guide all of the state medical boards uh, and their license. They all work in lockstep. I think they take their orders from the FSMB, which is not a governmental entity, right? It's a private nonprofit. Its profits and its money flows are really murky. Um, and they're the ones who first um, talked about that we need a misinformation policy. And after they put out, a, 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 I think it was a memo or a paper on it, then you saw the American Board of Internal Medicine, American Board of Pediatrics, American Board of Family Medicine. They started putting together misinformation policies. And then you started seeing all the, the boards were already going after us. So I, I think the FSMB is a really important part of this. And I agree with Merrill is that we don't have the evidence. We would need a lot of discovery to find the connections, but they're there, right? I mean, when Twitter files drop, Merrill, that's when we saw just the most craziest connections between the government and a central clearinghouse for all of social media. The government was working on individual Americans. I mean, the, the web is really thick. And um, I, I agree with what Michael said. It's time for the courts. I'm sick of being the doctor, throwing rocks from the sidelines and yelling. You know, it's like it's time for the, the, the judges, uh, the courts, the prosecutors and the prisons. Yeah, the thing that the thing that makes me. Um, most angry, I have to say, is this um, the authorization of this new vaccine, uh, Dr. Nassi, you were just talking about, under the EUA. It's still under the EUA. Now, how is that possible when there is no oh, present health emergency? So there's a couple of things there. First of all, surprisingly, the FDA issued a license for the new vaccine that came out last week for those 12 and up and issued an EUA for those 11 and under. Um, now, it's a funny license because there's no evidence. They didn't do clinical trials. You know, they, the FDA only decided on the recipe in June. Oh my God. So what they did is um, issue this so-called license the way they license flu shots, which is as an amendment sort of, so that it's based on a prior flu shot, based on evidence that came from a prior COVID vaccine. So when the CDC's ACIP reviewed the, the new, the third iteration of a COVID vaccine for Moderna and Pfizer, and actually uh, Novavax was, was also there, um, what they did was show them information from 2021 on yep. those, EUA'd, by the way, COVID vaccines, and say, we're using that to license this. It was very crazy. We we at CHD are looking into this to see whether, in fact, this is legally kosher. So that's um, one issue. Now, I can't remember. What was the other one? I've forgotten. Um, 
the, so they didn't, they never made a licensed vaccine available to people until now. So the, the bivalent booster was also under EUA. Now what Robert, um, uh, what's his name, Califf, the FDA commissioner claimed is that the secretary of HHS makes one declaration about emergencies, but that the FDA commissioner makes a different declaration and that the EUAs can be based solely on the FDA declarations and don't require what we always thought they required, which was a declaration from the HHS secretary. So he came up with that sort of justification. And again, I don't, I don't know legally whether he's correct. The problem is the FDA can issue its own rules and regulations. So you think you've got them. You might have beat them in a court of law. And I, I spoke with um, oh, Jonathan E. Mord, who is an attorney who's brought 20 cases against the FDA and has won eight of them. And he told me they never let you win. You win. You beat them in court. And then they change the rules and regulations to defeat you. Oh, my God. Well, this is, yeah. Uh, you know, you look at what's what's coming now. You've got this one, then you've got, um, uh, and can any of you tell me if the uh, RSV vaccine and or the flu vaccine that they're recommending all three are also based on mRNA platforms? Uh, yeah, so the there are two RSV vaccines that were licensed very recently. One of them is, is for the elderly, and one is also um, just licensed a week or two ago for pregnant women, and neither is mRNA, but there is a Moderna version of an RSV vaccine that is waiting for FDA approval. And that is on the mRNA platform, correct? On the mRNA platform. That's all they have at Moderna is RNA. Um, there is also an RSV monoclonal antibody that um, has also been approved with almost no data, basically no data. And I mean, they have children they have injected it into that the FDA and CDC wanna to give to babies on the first day they're born in the hospital. But because the wholesale price is $395 per dose um, and insurance isn't required yet to pay for it, the hospitals don't wanna eat that money. So there's an issue of who's gonna pay for it. So they may not be able to give it to babies in the hospital, but then doctors don't wanna buy that either and possibly eat that amount. So CDC is trying to figure out how they can make sure everybody gets paid. And in their meet, in their ACIP meeting, they spend a lot more time talking about how everyone was gonna get paid rather than much more time than they spent discussing safety or efficacy. Um, what do you expect to see, uh, any of you, Dr. Turner, Dr. Nass, Dr. Corey, uh, from this? Uh, do, do you expect uh, a lot of people to line up for this uh, new vaccine? Let's talk about the COVID vaccine for now. And what do you expect you'll see in the coming months from those who do, who have taken every booster that has come along since the beginning of the COVID shots? What will what, what do you predict you will see in terms of potential vaccine injury and or death. Michael? Well, sure. I'll, I'll tell you what I have seen. A very poignant example comes to mind. <clears throat> I had someone contact me who is wealthy. He owned several car dealerships. And one of his GMs I had successfully treated with early treatment, he said, I've got to get my boss in to see. He keeps getting these boosters. He's going downhill. He's uh, mentally just not sharp. He's frail. I mean, he's a shell of his former self. I said, okay, fine. So we're doing telemedicine. His family's gathered around. And I could see in this guy's mind, 
he knew he wasn't doing well, but he was fighting this tremendous battle of, is he going to believe Dr. Turner, this maverick sort of FLCCC physician, or is he going to believe all these big university doctors at all these fancy clinics he was going to, right, who were telling him, it's not the vaccine, it's not the boosters, you've got some small fiber neuropathy and some pots and some this and that, and nobody wanted to name it. And he's like, well, they're telling me different. They don't think I should take the ivermectin. And they're, you know, and I'm like, okay, sir. Well, so we, we kind of tried to fight for sort of his mind. And I could see every time we visited, he was never fully in on the FLCCC protocol. And consequently, he started to get worse and worse. He dropped off the screen. I never heard about him. I followed up with the GM recently. I said, what's going on? How's your boss doing? He's like, yeah, he got a couple more boosters and he died. He died last year. And I, to be honest, that is the end result okay if you keep getting boosters in my opinion from what i have seen you will have neurologic decline significantly and significant cardiovascular risk and you are flirting with death and the more the spike protein builds up the more it does its nasty business which has been well defined at this point but particularly the neurologic decline is startling uh and quite scary that's what i've seen so you're you're yeah. digging a grave towards neurologic decline very so this does have a this chops do have a cumulative effect of spike protein and the resultant symptoms that you that you brought, that you said. Sure, about. sure. Well, Dr. McCullough has spoken about, you know, we can still find spike protein in remnants of the immune system out to, you know, 12, 14, even 16 months later, if I'm not mistaken. And so your body still has to work through this. That's off of an original dose. So if you're getting boosters faster than your body can rid yourself of the spike protein, right? Logic is that that's accumulating. And we can do lab tests, peers, clinic yeah. does these, I do as well, right? To quantify it. I'll let him talk about that. But up goes the burden, up goes your pathology, and it's a one-way road to disaster for your health. It's simple. We see that clinically. It's it's you know it's cumulative spike protein exposure. The spike protein is so damaging to the body; it triggers so many pathologic processes. Um, the cumulative spike exposures can be through repeated vaccination or repeated COVID. So my patients who are already chronically ill and injured. Uh, when they get COVID, the majority, a slight majority, will get worse. Not everyone does, but they'll get worse. And similarly, if they had long COVID and they get vaccinated, over half get worse. Um, but to your question, you know, what's going to happen? You know, it. I'm really tired of making predictions because that's the one thing I've gotten wrong. It's <laughs> my predictions of what's, I kept thinking we were going to win tomorrow. And I've said that 150 times, but but I do still have this optimistic thing. And it's based on something rather unsettling, which is, the toxicity of these vaccines and the inefficacy, it, that's not that's not being hidden so well anymore, right? Just start from the V-safe data, which was got through FOIA, and you find out that 7.8% of everyone vaccinated in that database had to seek out medical care. So you have 7.8% of patients who are extremely gun-shy just from getting the vaccine, right? Then mm -hmm. you have in other Rasmussen polls, I can't, I think it was either between 25 and 50% of Americans believe they know someone who died from the vaccine. We have life insurance data screaming about unprecedented rise in young, healthy people dying. The life insurance claims are up. Um, the inefficacy is out there. The last uptake was so low that I think going forward is my sense is that they've run out of the, the powers of propaganda and censorship as widely deployed and as depraved as it was deployed, the truth is coming out. And I think the truth is aware to more and more Americans. And I'm shocked if anyone lines up for these shots. I know there will be because still, you know, the power of the media and, and coercion and nudging and all the kind of psychological techniques that they're doing to direct our behaviors are still in play. But 
I, I do think it's going to run out of power. And, and my hopes are that, you know, we're going to say enough and there's going to be a, a critical mass of people who does not comply. And we send the message that they, their lives no longer will work on us. We know the truth. And I, I, I don't know, maybe that's a little pie eyed, but um, I'm, I'm working towards that. And Meryl, what do you, what do you want to, what do you want to say? So the um, bivalent booster was only, it was available for a little over 12 months. And according to CDC, who always, you know, skews, fakes their data, only 17% of Americans took a, a, a at least one bivalent booster. So if they say it was only one in six, it was probably, who knows, one in 12, one in 10. You know, so I think people have figured out that the vaccine doesn't work, that the disease has become much milder. Um, and may they may or may not have figured out it causes illness because we have to realize the mainstream media that none of us are watching anymore are constantly lying to them. You know, so even if they have the radio on in the background, they're hearing all this stuff, which is coming in subliminally yeah. and making them think it's it's real, you know, proven uh, fact. Um, so I think we're, we're dealing with people who on the one hand know enough to be cautious and careful, but they don't exactly know why. That's what I think is happening. Interesting observation. Wow. Yep. Uh, I think one more question and then we'll wrap for tonight. Uh, um, this has been an incredible discussion and just to hear your stories is so, uh, as I said, people uh, watching this and you can hear from the chat are just outraged uh, to hear what you all have been through. Um, Matthew asks, do you see a role for private membership agreements, PMAs in the medical system of the future? Yeah, uh, you know, unfortunately, I used to believe in, you know, socialized medicine. You know, I was so happy when I was a resident at the VA where none of the patients had to pay for anything we ordered so we could treat them as, you know, aggressively or, you know, we could treat them how we wanted the very best way without money being an issue. And I thought that was heaven. Well, subsequently, I discovered, no, that the third party payer, you know, the insurance company or the government or whoever is took so whenever you give these organizations entities the ability to have power over you they grab it not initially it's inch by inch and so now you know if you're a doctor and you take medicare medicare sends you these thick brochures every two months about what you must all the new rules and all the things you have to do to be in compliance you know, you have to wear a mask, you have to be vaccinated, you have to vaccinate your parents, patients, blah, blah, blah. And they're sending that to the hospital. So as long as there is any intermediary standing between you and your doctor, and I would suggest standing between you and your teachers, standing between you and your policemen, you know, standing between you and the courts, um, it that power will be used to help somebody besides you and harm you. So I, I, you know, I'm I really sorry to say this because, you know, who can afford a heart transplant on their salary? Nobody. But we have to figure out if we're going to have, ideally, we could have third party payers, but we would restrict what they would be able to um, direct, that they could not direct your health care. Right now, they are doing all the directing. They are. They are. Pierre, Dr. Turner, do you want to comment on that? I'm not much familiar with PMAs per se, but I agree that in general, the path forward is exactly as Dr. Nass described, getting rid of the third parties the best way we can, looking, seeking out cash-based practices or membership-based practices. Again, where that doctor-patient 
freedom is is there. You know, there's an elephant in the room if there's an insurance company involved. I I there's an axiom, right? And it basically it's you work for whoever pays you. It sounds so obvious, but it's true. You work for whoever pays you. If the doctor is paid by the insurance company, he or she works for the insurance company. You don't see that when you're in the room, you're looking at the doctor, but what you've really done is you've outsourced your medical care to the insurance company. The insurance company then tells the doctor, this is what we will pay for. This is what we want. This is how much we'll reimburse you. This is what we you know, will and won't charge. This is what we'd want as far as COVID vaccines, masking, et cetera, et cetera. So you have outsourced your medical care to that ent entity. Are you going to get the best patient-centered care under those circumstances? Decide for yourself, but the answer is pretty obvious. And so we need to move towards more of these cash-based one-on-one uh, interactions for the best care, without a doubt. Yeah, I, I reason, you go ahead, Mel. Okay, the reason people died in the hospital on ventilators and getting remdesivir when they didn't want either was because the federal government, Medicare, offered hospitals a 20% add-on to the entire hospital bill if they gave them remdesivir and offered very, very high reimbursements for patients with COVID who were put on ventilators. And CDC told these um, hospitals they didn't even need a positive test. They could just guess that they had COVID. And if they put them on a ventilator and put that, you know, on the gave them a diagnosis code for it, um, they would get, you know, tens of thousands of dollars more in reimbursements. And so the bean counters, of course, at every hospital in the country, made it a standard of care, made it a, a requirement, basically, that patients be treated in these ways. And that is, you know, that is, in fact, what harmed patients and killed patients was too many, too many ventilators. We were also given false information. We were told that patients suddenly crump with COVID. They suddenly just code. Yeah. And if you didn't ventilate them before that happened, you'd probably, you'd probably lose them when they coded. And so we had to preemptively ventilate. This has never been taught nope. before for any disease. This is a com completely new, but you know, we heard it from everybody. And had I been an ICU doctor, I would have done it too. I believed it for a month or two until, you know, more data rolled in and we saw this was bullshit. Not, not in my ICU, Meryl. I shot that down when they first proposed it. And I'm, that's one of my proudest achievements is I was the chief of the University of Wisconsin. Exactly what you said happened. I had anesthesiologists coming up to me, others coming to me. Oh, I heard from a friend in New York or here that they're coming in, talking on their phone, and then they're crashing. And I'm like, from a pneumonitis? I've never heard of a sudden crash from a pneumonitis. And, and I said, no, we're not changing our approach to putting people on mechanical ventilation. It's not about oxygen levels. It's about work of breathing. If their work of breathing can be sustained, they look reasonably comfortable, then you support them in whatever way you can, but you don't intubate them. And, and actually, I won that argument pretty early. That was probably the last argument I won in COVID uh, that so easily. But, um, but you know, to your question, I'm just going to say very briefly, I agree with the above. I mean, we need to preserve private practice. Um, it's never been, that's another big lesson I took out of this, just to tell you guys where I came from. When I was in grad school in the late 90s from my master's thesis in my public health degree, I literally wrote a thesis supporting Medicare for all. Yeah, you <laughs> did. That's 20 years ago. Wow. I had to, if I rewrite on that one, it would be the exact opposite paper, which is we need decentralization, uh, less, you know, less top-down control, more autonomy and and how to pay for it. Cause like I'm a fee-based practice, but there are some good ideas. I don't know enough about PMAs, like Michael said, but I do have patients that are on these um they're called like MediShare programs where like they all put their money into a pool. 
And then they applied for everything's paid for. And many of my patients are very happy. They're able to pay for the care using their monthly payments and their, their pools are actually paying for the specialized care they need. And, and so there are good solutions out there. And, and I'll just end by saying, you know, the FLCCC going forward, we're going to be doing a lot of work in this area, trying to highlight and put together networks uh, and directories of, of resources and physicians that you can get your medical care from that, um, you know, are largely going to be free of these conflicts of interest, as well as these rigid controls that are coming down from everywhere, from the boards, from the, the, the specialty boards, from the insurance companies, you know, edicts from uh, agencies, and and we have to get out from under that. And and I, I do think if we're successful, the, the future will, will be providing a really robust and attractive alternative for people to seek out care. And that's what we want to do. That's what we want to do. And that's what we're going to do. And it's, it's mission forward all the way. Yep. Very well stated, Pierre. Thank you to all of you. We're going to have to leave it there. Dr. Nass, Dr. Turner. Dr. Corey, thank you very much. And uh, this is not the last you'll hear of this particular subject. We really appreciate your being here tonight. We do have uh, some announcements before we say good night. We are really glad that you were able to join us tonight for this incredible discussion. And we hope you, you, we hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Please make sure to be with us next Wednesday for another incredibly important discussion. Our own Dr. Mobin Syed, Dr. Bean, and neurologist Suzanne Gazda. Dr. Suzanne Gazda will be with us. You most likely know uh, them, uh, Suzanne in particular, from previous webinars. She's been with us then in our FLCCC conferences. Uh, they'll be together to discuss the prevention and treatment of Alzheimer's disease. So we will see you for that conversation next week. And the reason we're doing this, just to be totally clear, is that there have been increases in Alzheimer's post-COVID-19 and post-COVID-19 vaccine. So as always, your questions are welcome and they will be addressed next week. So we hope to see you here next week at the same time and same place. Now, the aforementioned Dr. Bean has a brand new episode of Long, Long COVID Story Short out, and this one is really not to be missed. So it shares an early pandemic study of COVID-confirmed hospital patients, and it showed that individuals with biomarker profiles of high fibrinogen levels and high D-dimers had a greater likelihood of neurological long COVID. So you can watch it now on our FLCCC Alliance and Rumble channels and on our website as part of our Education on Demand forum. Now we're always looking for more like-minded patient-centered healthcare providers to join our FLCCC providers directory. And if you haven't joined yet, but would like to be added, please send us an email at clinical at flccc.net. Thank you so much for helping us redefine medicine and build a greater and mightier FLCCC army. And tonight's discussion was proof that we need you all. It helps us reach so many more patients who need this critical and life-saving help. And we can also have you uh, check in or join the chat. And here is the address right here, fl uh, genie.us flccc-provider. Now we have a new guide 
to share with you. This was created by the Christinas, the FLCCC Christinas, Dr. Christina Carmen, and our own Christina Moro, CRNA. The guide was created to help explain what the glucose ketone index, or GKI, is and how it can be used as a marker of metabolic health. And it also includes meal suggestions and shopping lists for those looking to maintain a low GKI. And you can find it now on our website under the tools and guides tab or at the link you see on the screen. And then the very same Christina's will be doing a Twitter space on Monday, October 9th. It's going to focus Focus on how to read food labels. For example, did you know that sugar can hide behind dozens of sneaky names? Or that if something is too difficult to pronounce, it probably should not be in your food. There will be lots of tips and tricks for simplifying your grocery shopping and eating better for a healthier you. Plus, there'll be time to answer your questions live. So in the meantime, read and download How to Read Food Labels Guide, again, on our website at the link on the screen. And with that, Let's bring up one of those Christinas and a Samantha thrown in for good measure. Um, tell us about how the questions went tonight and what were people asking? Well, I, a lot of legal questions. Sam, what do you think? Oh, she's muted. <laughs> yeah, I think everybody was kind of just tuned into the doctors and their stories. I just, we didn't get that many questions tonight. Yeah, we had about 40, 50, actually. We had 50 and we answered 45. Yeah. So people were wondering what legal recourse uh, could be gotten from uh, what we were hearing tonight. That was absolutely infuriating. I mean, it was, and, and you could see from people on the chat and people in, on Rumble, um, they all know what's going on. But when you hear their stories, the extent to which this is going on, the other thing they had Dr. Nass do was to take a... a, a a mental evaluation. I mean, anything that they could do to humiliate her. And they they stretched out her hearing uh, for over a year. So usually it's, and I hope Dr. Turner's hearing in the spring is consecutive uh, so that you don't have to wait. And now her license has been suspended for so long, unnecessarily, such an injustice. Well, I'm glad you were there in case there were any more medical questions, which you always answered brilliantly. So thank you very much. We appreciate it. Joyce, can I mention something about a provider? Um, of course. That can, be, of course. that can be also people who offer things like therapy and nurse advocacy businesses, other all sorts of things. We want to broaden our um, database to help include many different things. Yeah, so back on the provider resource uh, address that we gave you earlier, please write into that address. Yeah. Very good. Thank you, Christina. Thank you so much, Samantha. Um, and finally, folks, we really would like to share an exciting update with you. With your generous gifts, we met and we exceeded, yay, our target of $100,000. And of course, this was matched by the incredible generosity of the Carter Family Foundation. So it will go that much further. So thank you so much, all of you, for supporting our mission. You know, we simply could not do this without you. And with that, we have a My Story that has some highs and some lows, but you're going to want to see it. Watch it and enjoy, and we'll see you next week. Good evening, everyone. Mm -hmm.